it's been a while ago now, but Steph uh, had left for a, a long weekend to visit her family in Iowa. She had left me alone with the girls. Emma was five, Bree was three, Pierce wasn't around yet. And, you know, I was convinced everything was going to be fine, it was going to be no big deal. I was wrong. Emma proceeded to get the most sick she's ever been in her life. She was running a temperature of 106 degrees, and, you know, I'm up at night, like, giving her children's Tylenol, trying to do whatever, and it would break her fever for a little bit, and then it would just kind of bounce back. So the next day, I take her to the doctor's office, and we go in, and the doctor says, hey, children run higher temperatures than adults do. It's just her little body's way of fighting the virus. She's going to be okay. She just needs rest water, and maybe some chicken noodle soup and fruit wouldn't hurt either. And so as we leave the doctor's office, I think, well, I've got to stop by and get some chicken noodle soup and fruit. I'm not sure how much we've got. So we, we stop by this little mini mart that's kind of close to our house. And I'm about ready to go inside and take the girls. And I look in the back seat. You know, Emma, she's just not doing well. She's tired. She needs to rest. And I look at her poor little limp body just laying in the car seat. And I'm thinking, you know, it's a nice day outside. It's cool outside. I'm just going to leave her in the car seat and just kind of let her rest for a little bit, right? I'm parked right there. It's going to be okay. And I'm going to leave her three-year-old sister, Bree, there just to kind of watch over her to make sure everything's all right. And... I handed Bree, you know, I know that this could be a bad idea. So I handed Bree a self, my cell phone and said, hey, you can play some games on the cell phone. So I rush, in, rush into the store, into this little mart, mini mart. I grab the chicken noodle soup. I grab the fruit. I'm keeping a watchful eye on the car the whole time. There's nobody in the checkout line. Dash through the checkout line, get checked out, run back to the car. It took me five minutes max, okay, five minutes max. I'm not exaggerating. Get back in the car, and Bree announces, Mommy called. Busted. I'm telling you, you don't get out of that one, guys. I'm just telling you. And little three-year-old Bree is trying to explain to her mom what's going on, and she thinks we're at Home Depot. You know, the good thing, as a result of that whole ordeal, Steph has vowed not to leave us again until the kids are 18, so... You know, we live in a world that's not feeling well. You know that? A world whose priorities are all upside down, all out of whack, and it'd be easy to go through and just look at the value system and the priorities of our world, and we can all name places and examples of where that exists. And it would be nice if it was just culture who had her value systems all confused. But honestly, my priorities get out of whack sometimes too. And I bet, if you're honest, that you would say that sometimes your priorities get confused as well. You know, we're entering into football season, right? And maybe you're just on pins and needles hoping perhaps that maybe, just maybe, the Skins can win the Super Bowl this year, right? Maybe you've already lost hope. I don't know. <laughs> but you can get so into the football games that maybe your just fellowship with the family of God suffers. You, you can get so committed to excellence at your workplace, success, whatever that may look like, that your relationship with your family suffers. You, you can get so committed, so into works of service and even serving the body of Christ and so into that, 
that the great commission to go and make disciples suffers. See, all three of those examples at different times in my life, I mean, if you substitute football and you put in the New York Yankees, I can relate to all three of those at various times. And they're not bad things. I mean, it's, it's good to enjoy a game and to, to be a football fan, baseball fan, whatever. It's good to work hard at your job and to do it with excellence. We ought to be the best workers out there. It's good to serve others and to build others up as we're called to do. But if the main thing is not the main thing, what's the result? Where does that leave us? See, we all lead busy lives, and the point of this message is, is not to cease from an active lifestyle, but to ask the question, how do we prioritize our lives in light of our culture, in light of our demands, and in, in light of our faith? And so as we examine just another face-to-face encounter this morning, I want you to imagine life before cell phones. Life before the internet, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all that social media stuff. Life before computers, television, radio, uh, cars, automobiles, anything. And as we kind of travel back to the first century this morning, we'll meet two sisters, Mary and Martha. And one sister will demonstrate a problem that all people of every culture have, have faced. And just, it doesn't matter if it's a fast-paced society or not. And another sister will stand out as just a silent example for how to handle that problem. So turn with me to Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42. And as we just kind of look at Martha and Mary and how Jesus interacts with them, Luke, 8, or Luke 10, 38 to 42, it's a great lesson on priorities and in our culture, just a great example for how to structure life. So Luke 10, 8, uh, 10 8, uh, 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha... Um, Sorry, I lost my play. But Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. So she came up to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. So to enter back into this uh, scenario into this scene, you have to understand Jesus' popularity at this point is widespread. And here he is coming to Martha's house. I mean, don't you imagine? She's elated. She goes out. She welcomes him. She can't wait. She greets him. She welcomes him in. And I imagine shortly thereafter, she kind of looks around and perhaps her house just looks lived in, right? It's not, it's not suitable at this moment to really be showcased to her Savior, not, not ready to be presented to her Lord. Maybe, maybe she thinks, okay, what, what food do I have available? How am I going to serve him something to eat? And she realizes she's got to make something. I have to have something to serve my Savior. And I imagine after her welcome, that this quick welcome kind of goes away, that the needs of the moment just kind of quickly take hold. Right? She looks around and she becomes busy, tidying things up, preparing something to eat, some kind of delicious meal. And in the midst of her busyness, she notices her sister, Mary. And there's Mary. She's just sitting there, 
She's not doing anything. She's just sitting there, and maybe she thinks, okay, I'll give Mary a moment, and then surely she will notice and she will get up to help me. Maybe she thought, if I just went to Mary right now, it could start like a fight in front of our guests. This wouldn't be good. I'm just going to give her a moment. And then the moment passes, and I'm sure her blood just begins to boil over. And at that moment, she can't even go to her sister. She just goes straight to Jesus. Says, Lord, don't you care? Mary's making me do all of it. you got to tell her to help me. See, we, we read those words, and they almost sound offensive to us, don't they? I mean, how could Martha talk to Jesus that way? But if we step back, I think we'll notice that we all suffer the same problem as Martha. We can all identify with Martha. We get distracted by things that seem so urgent in life. Distracted by many things that seem so pressing and so necessary and so immediate. We have this problem. It's the same problem Martha had. We get distracted by things that seem urgent to us. I mean, that's Martha's problem. The, the words of the narrator, Luke, he, he says it. Martha was distracted with all the preparations she had to make. Jesus said it in his response, that you are worried and troubled about many things. Now, this is first century. This, this is before the era of technology. Now, now we've got information just at our fingertips all the time. I mean, we've got opportunities galore. There's always the newest and nicest, the latest and greatest, the, the new invention we need to get. We, we can communicate easily with friends and family all around the world. We can basically travel anywhere in the world in the span of a day at most. There, there, we live in a culture with more and more and more choices, choices, choices. You got it all, all kinds of options. And as we've probably all experienced, more and more distractions, more and more things that seem so necessary, seem so urgent. Martha faced it in the first century, okay? And if, and if she had the potential to be troubled and worried about many things, don't you know that we face that temptation too? And so th this is one of those stories, one of those passages that we could take a poll this morning. We'd all raise our hands. Yeah, I can, I can identify with Martha. There, there are times in my life when I feel a lot like Martha, and I want you to see where this problem leads, because sometimes we can just be cutesy about it. You know, oh, yeah, we're busy, what, whatever, we got this. We got... And we can almost minimize it, like it's not that big of a deal. I want you to see where this problem leads, though. Martha, when she first welcomes Jesus, don't you imagine how excited she is? I mean, this is Jesus, the miracle-working Messiah, and he's coming into her home. And I imagine that Martha enjoyed being the hostess that she was a good hostess, that she was looking forward to preparing a meal and accomplishing these things. But in that moment, as she looks around and realizes everything that has to be done and Mary's not helping, what happens? Her joy is lost. She loses her joy. This is a woman, I'm sure, who enjoyed hosting, likes doing all this thing, likes serving people. But then it becomes a chore for her. You know, she, she enjoyed serving Jesus, but when she realized that Mary was just sitting there, her joy was gone. Just like that, her joy disappears. See, we get distracted by things that seem so immediate, so urgent, so necessary, even things that oftentimes we can enjoy doing. But in that moment, it can rob us of our joy. And that's a problem. 
Because God has made you and me. He has uniquely designed each one of us, gifted us in a special way that we could play this crucial part in the body of Christ. And, and you can use your skills and your activities and things that ought to charge your batteries and instead be sucked dry, be robbed of the joy because like Martha, you've got distracted. You become just troubled. It becomes a chore. Why? Because the priorities are out of whack. The reason for why you're doing it now is just a duty, it's just an obligation, it's just, oh, I got to get this done, rather than, oh, this is life-giving, this is what I enjoy doing. Duty becomes more important than obedience, and that's what's happened to Martha, and we have the same problem. But that's not the extent of the problem. We don't just lose our joy, it gets worse than that. Look at this, it impacts our relationships with others. I mean, think about this for a moment. Whenever you think of Martha in the Bible, I mean, who just goes with Martha? Mary, right? Mary and Martha, they, they just kind of go together like two peas in a pod. You almost don't think of one without the other. Two sisters, they, they live together, they appear to be close, loving sisters. Yet Martha gets distracted by things that she thinks is so urgent, so necessary, so immediate. And in that moment, she can't even spit Mary's name out of her mouth. Do you notice that? It's just my sister, my sister who's left me alone, my sister who's making me do all this work by myself. It's just my sister. See, we get distracted by urgent things, and then we think that our priorities, what we're doing, is more important than what anybody else is doing. You know, hey, what I have determined is, is important is the most important. And if you're not doing what I'm doing, your priorities are out of whack. And so that we get judgmental, we start pointing the finger, hey, you should be doing what I'm doing. You should be helping me out. Why are you just sitting there? There, there are important things that need to be done here. Tell her to help me. What she's saying, what I'm doing is more important. I'm over here slaving away and she's sitting down. I'm working hard and she's taking a break. I'm serving Jesus and she's not. See, you can justify it. Right? Oh, more hands would make lighter work. This is my house. She's my younger sister. She should be pitching in. But it boils over. And, and two sisters who ought to be united in their appreciation of having just Jesus as their guest are instead at odds because one sister believes that her priorities are more important than the other sisters. And she thinks she's in the right and Mary's in the wrong. So it's not just that the joy's lost. <laughs> All of a sudden, that now, because you get so tied up in what seems most important, now relationships are impacted. But it doesn't end there. We get, we get tied up with what seems urgent, what seems most important, and it doesn't just rob us of our joy. It doesn't just hamper our relationships with others. Look at this. It also hinders our faith. I mean, listen to this again, what Martha says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. Martha gets distracted by things that she thinks are so important, and then she thinks that she can instruct her Lord. Lord, don't you care? I mean, those words sting, and they sting because we've been there. Because sometimes we think just like Martha, we think, Jesus, I know you do care. 
I, I know you care about my circumstances and what's going on in my life, so why are you leaving things this way? When are you going to convict that person? When are you going to change that heart? When, when are you going to smooth things out here? Lord, don't you care? We might not use the same language, but we can think the same thoughts. See, we can relate. We get distracted, and then we think we know better than God. God, it's time to get up and start moving. Tell her, do something here, God. And in that moment, our faith is hindered. Because now we're not looking for God. We're, 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 we think now we're in a place where we can instruct him and tell him what he ought to be doing. See, we have a problem. It's a big problem. We get distracted by things that seem so important, so necessary, so immediate. And it leads to a loss of joy. It impacts our relationships with others. And it hampers our faith with God. But there's a solution. Look at, look at Mary, 10, Luke 10, 39. Martha, sister named Mary, sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what Jesus said. And Jesus would say that Mary has chosen the best part, and it will not be taken from her. Now, to really understand why Mary who never even utters a, a word in this passage, right? She's just the silent solution. Why she becomes the solution requires picking up this story in its broader context. Uh, immediately before this passage, you, you have the story of the rich um, lawyer who comes and asks Jesus, hey, Jesus, what, what do I got to do to have eternal life? And, and then the lawyer, he reasons correctly that the two greatest commandments are to love God and to love others. And so the guy thinks that he has the loving God part down. And so Jesus then tells him the story of the Good Samaritan, right? This is what it really looks like to love others. And he hears all that. And if, and if you're reading Luke and you're going through and you're thinking, okay, I can have eternal life by good works, by, by loving people the way this Good Samaritan loved people, well, then Luke inserts this story of Martha and Mary. Mary, who is just sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening, not doing anything, right? She's just listening, not doing anything. She's not serving anybody. She's just listening. What's the point? See, our problem is we get distracted by stuff that we even think is good. I mean, Martha's doing something good. She's, she's making the house look nice. She's making a meal. She's wanting to serve Jesus. She's serving, right? This is good. But Mary does something that's even better because she's following command number one. See, if you don't have the vertical right, then the horizontal suffers. See, the, the lawyer, he thought he had loving God down. He didn't really have that down either. And here's the point that Mary shows us, that we have to make loving God our number one priority, that that's got to be number one, that we must love God first. And that's exactly what Mary does. She faced the exact same scenario, the exact same circumstances as Martha, but she chose something completely different. And it really is amazing when you think about it, because Mary takes the posture of a disciple, Okay, in those days, a disciple would sit at the feet of a rabbi and listen to the rabbi as the rabbi taught and instructed. And here, Jesus is the rabbi and Mary is the disciple. But here's the kicker. This was not a position for women in that culture. 
a, a woman could not be a disciple who sat at the feet of a rabbi. That, that, was, that was not for women, yet that's exactly where she was. Martha's busy in the kitchen preparing a meal, tidying up, doing whatever, and that's exactly where Mary was supposed to be. That, that's exactly where the culture would have told her, Mary, this is where you need to be. This is the work that really is for you. Yet she's not there. She's at Jesus' feet, sitting there like a disciple, taking everything in. And note, this is scandalous in that culture. Okay, Jesus, the rabbi, is giving a private lecture to a woman. That he invites her and he allows her to sit there. It's almost difficult to explain like how much equality in the scriptures that Jesus gives to women when you think about the culture at that time. I mean, you want to talk about the most um, women's equality movement that's ever happened in the history of our world. It's at the time of Jesus and what he's doing for women. It is incredible. And here he is giving this private lesson to Mary just like a disciple. It's an unbelievable scene. And what makes it even more unbelievable is Martha is in the kitchen distracted by many things. She's got all these things that she thinks she has to do, that she has to check off. And here's Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, and she's not distracted by anything. She's totally focused on her Savior, just listening, learning, taking it all in. And that's incredible because if you're anything like me and I'm sitting on the couch or something, maybe I'm talking to somebody and Steph is in the house like working, doing stuff, I am not a good listener at that moment, right? Because at that moment, I, I start to even feel like almost guilty inside, like, oh man, I should be getting up, I should be helping, I should be doing something. There's almost this sense of obligation, duty. And in that moment, it's hard for me to concentrate a little bit. See, Mary is so focused on Jesus, it reveals her priorities, and it becomes a great solution to us that loving God must be number one. That, that we've got to be able to tune some other things out and just be occupied with Christ. See, to be occupied with Christ is of higher value than to be occupied for Christ. And that's a great reminder for our culture. In a culture where we can be really quick to our feet, we can often be slow to his feet. And, and we must be reminded that in order to be a faithful disciple like Mary, we must make loving God our number one priority. So what is it in life that causes you to shift part priorities? What, what is it that causes you to jumble things up and down? What is it that, that seems so urgent, so necessary, so important? You know, we've got a culture, a million things are vying for your attention. And so we've got to ask ourselves, are there any adjustments that we need to make in order to make sure that our eyes are fixed on Jesus? You know, we got a problem. We get distracted by stuff. Stuff that seems really important. It can be good things. But there's a solution. And it's making loving God our first priority. In a society that is so busy, we've got to ask the question, okay, how do we do that? How does that work? And one of the main ways it works is like this. We have to spend time cultivating the relationship. We gather together. We, we, we serve one another. I mean, it's important. Fellowship with God is a matter of priorities. It's a choice. It's always a choice. And it's a good choice. Jesus would tell Martha it's the best choice. 
Yet in a society with information constantly at our fingertips, we sometimes exchange the fellowship with God for being busy doing stuff. And, and then in the, in the busyness of doing stuff, even things that are good, God can no longer be the focal point. But see, if God is the focal point at my job, with my family, in my entertainment, how I spend my leisure time, when God is the center of it all, then it works. There, there is no separation of the secular and the sacred. Okay, it's all sacred. All life is spiritual. When we make God the focal of it all, when we divorce him of certain things, well, you know, my time for God is at church on Sunday morning, maybe Wednesday night or whatever, in my impact group or however that works. We, we miss it because he wants to be Lord of all. And so a follower of Jesus doesn't spend time like studying God's word and just getting to know him and asking, okay, how do I cultivate my relationship with God through how my life is expressed in all these different scenarios? We miss it. Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet listening to him. And I, I wonder, don't, wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall just to hear what Jesus was teaching Mary? And you know, I, I wonder sometimes what exactly he was teaching her. Now, obviously, if it were important, it would be recorded for us. It's not necessary for us to know. Otherwise, Luke would have told us what is important is the question as we kind of draw to the end of this face-to-face -face series is what does God have in mind to teach you? What does Jesus want to communicate to you face-to-face? -face? See, it was spoken word to Mary. It's often written word to us. Maybe Jesus would like to take you to Genesis and show you that he is the prophesied seed who will crush the serpent's head. He is the brother betrayed by his kinsmen whose betrayal will lead to their deliverance. Maybe he'd like to take you to Exodus where he is the great I am. He is the Passover lamb whose blood protects his people from the angel of death and the wrath of God. He is manna from heaven and the water from the rock. In Leviticus, he is the tabernacle of God among men. He is the brazen altar signifying his death, which gives entrance. He is the brazen labor promising to cleanse us from every sin. He is the bread, food that gives everlasting life. He is the golden lampstand, the light of the world that will never be extinguished. He is the altar of incense perpetually interceding on our behalf. He is the veil through him. He is the only access into the presence of God. He is the ark. He embodies that holy place where heaven touches earth. He is the holy of holies in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. Maybe he'd take you to Numbers and show you that he is the great hope in whom all can safely put their trust. He is the great high priest who will never fail. In Deuteronomy, he is the Lord our God. He is the city of refuge whose criminals may run for protection. In Joshua, he is the champion over every enemy that stands in the way of God's people. In Judges, he is the angel of God, empowering the weak and pursuing the lost. He is the perfection of grace and patience toward his wandering people. In Ruth, he is the wealthy landowner who redeems his Gentile bride from hopeless poverty, placing her in the family line of royalty, giving her the right to everything in his vast estate. In First and Second Samuel, he is the name of the Lord in whose strength young men of faith conquer enemies and slay giants. In the Kings and the Chronicles, he is the sovereign king behind and above all kingdoms, both pagan and God-fearing. In Ezra, he is the keeper of divine province to Israel and the hand that liberates his people from their bondage. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken 
broken lives and the restorer of broken fellowship. In Esther, he is behind the scenes outsmarting the evil one and seeing that his remnant will remain, whispering in the ear of a young queen that for such a time as this, she has been crowned. In Job, he is the majestic one who rides upon the wind, commanding the lightning. He is the Lord of mystery who does not explain life but reveals that he is sovereign over all of life. In Psalms, he is the rock of refuge, the shepherd of the sheep, the tower of shelter, the sweet honey of revelation, thirst-quenching water, a crucified Savior, and a sin-forgiving Redeemer. In Proverbs, he is the everlasting wisdom, divide and counsel for those who accept his invitation to turn aside and listen. In Ecclesiastes, he is eternal satisfaction over every earthly desire. He is the one to be remembered in the days of our youth. In Song of Solomon, he is the bridegroom who pursues his bride, stopping at nothing until she is safely in his arms. In Isaiah, he is Emmanuel, the suffering Savior, the one crushed for our iniquities, and the coming Prince of Peace, whose strong shoulder will one day bear the governments of this world. In Jeremiah, he is the branch of righteousness, who brings justice and equity. He is the promised one who will write a new covenant on the hearts of his people. In Lamentations, he is the father who disciplines the sons he loves. In Ezekiel, he is resurrection power, breathing life into dry bones and bringing life from death. He is the faithful leader, regathering his wandering flock. In Daniel, he is the stone cut without hands, rejected by kingdoms, yet smiting the false image and filling the earth with his glory. He is the one whose kingdom will never end. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband to the faithless wife. In Job, he is the hope of his people, the strength of the children of Israel. In Amos, he is the wrath of God against oppressors. He is the promise of vineyards and gardens where his children will one day rest. In Amos, he is the, uh, I'm sorry, in Obadiah, he ascends Mount Zion as he delivers as the deliverer who judges the kingdoms of this world and inaugurates his own everlasting reign. In Jonah, he is the fulfillment of the sign that after three days and after three nights, the Son of Man will come forth vindicating the righteousness of God. In Micah, he is the one who pardons our iniquities, who does not retain his anger forever, who delights in unchanging love. He is the one who treads our iniquities under his feet, who casts out our sins into the depths of the sea. In Nahum, he is slow to anger and great in power. Of him, mountains quake and the hills dissolve, yet he is a safe haven for all who hide in him. In Habakkuk, he is radiant like sunlight, whose strength makes our feet like hinds feet and makes us walk on high places. In Zephaniah, he is the one who will gather those who grieve and those who are lame and those who are outcast. He is the one who will turn their shame and despair into everlasting praise. In Haggai, he is the victorious Lord of hosts who will shake the heavens and the earth as he overflows the nations of this world. He is the one who will rare his people as jewels around his omnipotent fingers. In Zechariah, he stands with his redeemed on the Mount of Olives. His holiness will be praised even by the inscriptions on the bells of horses' bridles as they gallop through the city of his glory. Holy to the Lord will be their praise for the Messiah. In Malachi, he is the divine refiner sitting over the smelting pot of his universe, purifying his chosen people as silver and gold. He is the great king who does not change and for all those who believe in him he will one day rise with healing in his wings and Jesus is just getting started because in the New Testament in Matthew he will explain that he is the promised Messiah the king from the line of David the disciple maker the perfect son of God who suffered was crucified and who rose again in Mark he is the anointed one the perfect son of God the authoritative and powerful miracle working Messiah he is the suffering servant who was crucified and who rose again Again, in Luke, he is the son of the most.
Most High, God's provision for humanity's needs, coming to earth to seek, to rescue, to heal, to save, to deliver. He is the Savior, the Christ, who was crucified and who rose again. In John, he is the Word, the Word with God, the Word who is God. Sent by the loving Father, he brought light from darkness and life from death. He announced that I am the bread of life, and I am the light of the world, and I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd, and I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the vine. He is God incarnate who was crucified and who rose Again, And in Acts, he is the gospel that spread, the message that is preached, the faithful and irresistible church builder, the life changer and purpose giver. He is the hope of the Jew, the hope of the Gentile, the hope of the world. In Romans, he is the power of God who brought salvation to the world. He is redemption. By his grace, he freely justifies. He is the gift of eternal life, working all things for the good of his people who he has called. He is the mind-transforming, priority-altering, working in ways that are good and pleasing and perfect. In the Corinthians, he is the one who takes those unfit for the kingdom of God. He takes the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the homosexuals, the thieves, the greeters, the drunks, the slanderers, the deceivers, and he doesn't leave us that way. He is the one who washes and sanctifies and justifies. He is the conqueror of the curse of Adam. In Galatians, he is the true gospel, one not to be mocked. He is the justifier of our faith. In Ephesians, he is the one who graciously chooses He is the adoptive father offering forgiveness through his blood. He is the gift-giving, heart-dwelling, church-loving, armor-equipping Christ the Lord. In Philippians, he is the one who storms jail cells to answer prayer, to remove anxiety, and in its place bring peace and joy. In Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. All things have been created by him and for him. He holds all things together. He is the head of the church, the firstborn among the dead. He has supremacy in everything. He is the reconciler through the cross. In Thessalonians, he is the one preparing to come again with the blast of a trumpet and the voice of an angel like a thief in the night to take his people to their rightful home. In Timothy, he is the one who gives the timid words to speak and those who are young the ability to lead by example. In Titus, he is the invader of everyone, older men, older women, younger men, younger women. He is sound doctrine and the encouragement to live a grace-filled life. In Philemon, he turns a runaway thieving slave into a brother. In Hebrews, he is superior, he is perfection, he is his completion. He did what no one or no nothing else could do. He is the one-size-fits-all sacrifice that grants access into the throne room of God. In James, he is not merely knowledge to be learned, but wisdom to be applied. He takes those who talk the talk and says, walk the walk. In Peter, he is the living hope who in the midst of oppression, in the midst of pain, in the midst of separation, he gives victory. In the letters of John, he is assurance of your salvation, the reason to love others. In Jude, he is the one who before all ages will have the glory, the majesty, the power, the authority forever. And in Revelation, he will come again, faithful and true, riding on that white horse, making a war to end all wars, vanquishing Satan, making all things new, the holy and true, slain lamb of God, worshiped with crowns, hurled at his feet, the alpha, the omega, the first and the last, the beginning of the end, the root of David, the king of kings. He's our bright and morning star, and he wins. You see, the question is not so much what was Jesus teaching Mary, but what does he have in mind to teach you? 
Where does he want to take you into his word so that you would encounter him face to face? See, a, a, a richness of a relationship with Jesus is not to be missed. And so we've got to rearrange our schedule. We've got to throw our schedule out. We've got to develop a new schedule. Whatever it takes, we have to cultivate that relationship so, so that we can grow in our knowledge and understanding and our application of living how God has called us to live. When Steph was gone and Emma was sick, you know, I did everything I could to, to make sure she was well cared for. I barely slept, you know. I stayed up late and just checking on her every few hours and bringing her water and fruit smoothies and chicken noodle soup, whatever I could do to try to make sure that she could get better as quick as possible. And one night, I was up there tucking her into bed and prayed with her at the end of the night and just kind of leaned down close and telling her how much I loved her. And she whispered back, Daddy... When's mommy coming home? <laughs> you know, when you're sick, when you're run down, when you're tired, when you're not feeling well, sometimes only mommy will do, you know? The world is sick. It's run down. It's tired. It's not feeling well. Only Jesus Christ will do. That there is no other answer. Yet sometimes we forget that. Because we get distracted by stuff that seems so important, so immediate, so necessary. But there's a solution. If the people of God would make loving God their number one priority, and then the application from that just follows. We just cultivate the relationship. We just spend time with them. We get to know them better. That's it. That's what it's all about. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that you desire to spend that time with us. God, as we've gone through just these face-to-face interactions, we... We just see that you, you set aside whatever culture says just to spend time with people, anybody. There, there's no limit to your access that you freely give of yourself to all of us. God, forgive us for when we get so distracted by things that seem so important. And in the moment, we, we forget our need for you. God, you have come and will one day make all things new. All things. Even those areas of society, those corners of culture that we think, no, 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 those are hopeless. You're going to redeem this whole world and make it all new. In the meantime, you use us to do that. So God, help us to, to love you well and to cultivate our relationship with you so that we as your ambassadors can take the good news of Jesus and impact people in every corner of culture and every sphere of society. We ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom we love.